Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Amen yet again. Good breakfast this morning, it looks like, so that's, uh, that's good news. We're turning this morning to one of those side roads that Sandy would talk about when from time to time we interrupt the study of For the Brothers and these general epistles to look at certain subjects that seem particularly relevant to men. And so we're coming to one of those today. The reason that they're not exactly side roads, which Sandy would say too, is because the side roads are so critically important, particularly for us as men, that we, we need to spend time looking at these subjects. And so that's what we're doing today. We're going to look at the subject of the man and his faith. And that's why I thought this hymn would be great for today, because I don't know when the last time you sang this hymn was, but it's been a long time for me. There aren't as many people that want to sing it now in mixed company in the church. It's like, oh, no, that's sort of gender exclusive, you know, uh, faith of our fathers and mothers. We would be, you know, it messes up, so you've got to say all of that. And, and I'm, all, I'm for that. I get that. I definitely want to include women in the message of the gospel, its implications. I'm glad for women. Women have important, important roles to play. But men have important roles to play, too. And there's nothing false about that hymn, nothing wrong with it. And we, we are using scriptural language when we speak about the faith of our fathers. And it's a good thing for us to remember that faith and fathers, faith and men, uh, go together. Because often we don't think that's the case. I was just uh, preparing a couple for marriage or considering whether I would can, uh, prepare this couple for marriage. You know, can they get married or not? And uh, she's a member here, he's not. And, and so there was, you know, discussion about, well, where's he coming from? Trying to figure that out. And in the course of the conversation, he made it explicitly clear that, oh, no, no, you know, I'm fine with kind of whatever she wants to say. I'm, I'm fine for her to be the spiritual head. I'm fine for her to do the faith part. I don't really deal with faith. I'm a, a man of science, a man of, you know, what I can see and all that. So, yeah, whatever she wants to do with faith is going to be just fine with me. I don't really care. And all kinds of bells and whistles are going off and alarms like this is not a good thing. And yet... I don't know if you would have to acknowledge at some points, maybe I default that way. I let my wife be the spiritual one. She's the one that teaches the kids about faith. She's the one that deals with some of that stuff. I deal with the more practical matters of money, you know, that are more important and the car getting fixed and the lawn getting taken care of. And so I deal with all that. She deals with faith. Well, Maybe that's why we need this side road this morning is because we need to remember that faith is absolutely indispensable for men, for fathers and sons and brothers. Faith is indispensable. So we turn to a passage this morning that makes that case very, very well in 2 Timothy chapter 1, right off the bat in Paul's last letter. Uh, that we know of, we're going to look at this. But let me just make that case for a second for you, that faith is indispensable before we actually get to the chapter itself. I think most of you will recall the verse in Hebrews 11, the great hall of fame of faith, that by faith Abel offered a better sacrifice, by faith Abraham, by faith David, by faith Jacob, Joseph, all of these heroes of the faith, they did what they did by faith. Faith was crucial to them. And in the midst of that chapter, the thesis statement is, without faith, 
It is hard to please God. A few of you go, wait, I don't know. What translation is that? I don't think that's what it says. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It can't be done without faith. So, if you, as a man, want to please God, to live a life pleasing in His sight, we're going to have to have faith. It's not an option. It is not just important. It is indispensable to be a person of faith. I think of Isaiah chapter 7, right before the great promise that the virgin shall be with child. I will give you a sign, the Lord says to Ahaz. I'll give you a sign since you wouldn't ask for one. But right before that great promise is given to us in Isaiah 7, we read this in Isaiah 7 when the prophet Isaiah rebukes King Ahaz and says, if you will not stand by faith, you will not stand at all. If we don't stand by faith, we won't stand as Christians and ultimately as human beings. We will not stand unless we stand by faith. This is a male subject, not a female subject, not that... It's a female subject too, of course, but it is a male subject that one man speaking to another man in Isaiah 7 says, if you won't stand by faith, you won't stand at all. Think of the themes that flow through Scripture. I'll just mention two of them about faith that are absolutely crucial. They're repeated so many times in the New Testament from a simple quotation in the Old Testament. The faith of Abraham. We hear a lot about that in Hebrews chapter 11, but not just in Hebrews chapter 11. Paul makes a whole lot about the faith of Abraham in Romans chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3. James picks up on it in James chapter 2. The faith of Abraham is absolutely crucial. So we find the faith of Abraham encapsulated, summed up in Genesis chapter 15 verse 6, where we read that Abram, that was his name then, Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was reckoned to his account as righteousness. That he didn't gain his salvation by his good works or by his tremendous obedience and going out to a country he didn't know what it was. That's not how he gained his salvation. He gained his salvation in Genesis chapter 15 by faith. Same way we gain salvation. So the New Testament thinks that the faith of Abraham is so important three different times in the New Testament that verse is quoted. That's a huge amount for one verse of Scripture being quoted three times in the New Testament. And so uh, Romans, the entire thesis uh, is, uh, well, Abraham believed God. It was counted him for right. That's that's Paul's big argument in Romans chapter 4. Galatians chapter 3 makes that same case again um, that His faith was reckoned to him for righteousness. So it's crucial. The faith of Abraham makes that clear. The other expression in the Old Testament that makes it clear that faith is absolutely indispensable is Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. You think, I'm not as familiar with Habakkuk as I was with Abraham. That's stretching it a little bit. I get that, but you're familiar with this verse because it too is repeated uh, several times in the New Testament. And that is, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. That that is the message of justification by grace through faith in the Old Testament. And Paul makes much of it in the New Testament. The author of the Hebrews makes much of it in the New Testament. It's Paul's thesis statement in Romans 1.17. The just shall live by faith. In fact, I think it provides the entire outline for Romans. So that's a crucial statement. The just shall live by faith. All I'm trying to say is that it is absolutely indispensable to men that we understand faith. So in this 
passage, 2 Timothy chapter 1, we come to a chapter of the New Testament that helps us see four facets of faith that we need to understand if we are to live as believers. Because isn't that our fundamental identity? Well, in fact, it is, as we'll see in just a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we'll begin with. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, that's just two verses, not that much. But in those two verses, there's a lot for us to learn even about faith. And then you say, well, I don't even think faith is mentioned in these two verses. Look at them again then. And I think you'll realize that faith is mentioned there because we come right at the beginning of this chapter to the recognition that faith has an object. Faith must be reposed in something. What is it? Thin ice and robust faith will enter, uh, will eventuate in wet person who's walking across that pond on that thin ice with great faith. I can go right across that thing. Won't even be a problem because I have great faith. Oh, I've got faith. Wow, such faith. Well, if the ice is thin, I don't care how great your faith is. You're going to get wet. So here we recognize that faith must have an object. Faith is only as good as its object. And the object of faith is, what does he call it? The promise of life. The promise Faith is always reposed in a promise that we are banking on somebody being true to his or her word, that they're going to do what they said they would do. In fact, this is my definition of faith. Learned long ago, and I continue to think out the implications of it. It's not original with me. Somebody gave it to me. I thought, that's excellent. Faith is the confident persuasion that God will do what he has said he will do resulting in action consistent with that belief. Faith is the confident persuasion that God will do what he has said he will do, resulting in action consistent with that belief. You can say you have faith, but if there's not action resulting from that faith, consistent with that faith, then we all have reason to wonder, really? You say you you believe that that ice will hold you up and you're not willing to step out on it? Oh, no, 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 I've got plenty of faith on that. Yeah, I think that's fine. That'll work. That's not a problem for me. Well, go ahead and walk across the pond. Well, you know, you guys have all walked across it and weakened it now. I'm not so sure. We all walked across the pond. Walk across the pond. Well, not really sure I can do that. Okay, you don't really have faith because your actions are speaking much more loudly than your words. If you had faith, you'd walk across the pond on the ice. You'd trust that the ice would hold you up, but you don't believe that. So, faith has got to have an object. It's got to have an object. And that object has got to be so solid that I know that I'm going to act on my faith and not just talk my faith. So, this promise is the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. That is the first of a bunch of expressions that are going to be used for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Just recognize faith is right here in these first two verses in that we recognize at the outset faith has to have an object. What are you going to put your faith in? And what Paul had chosen to put his faith in was this promise of life that is given in Christ Jesus. Um, That changed everything for him. 
In fact, let me back up. I'll give you this. I, I, you're in a pattern of using the fill-in-the-blanks on your tables. That's probably a good idea. I know some of you would fall asleep if you didn't have to jerk awake and fill in a blank there. But I don't want to make that difficult for you. So these four facets of faith, just to give you the heads up on where we're going with this, um, they're all going to start with I because pretty much every preacher is going to use that trick to help the preacher remember where he's going. We're really not trying to do it for you. We're trying to remember where am I in this outline and what on earth am I getting ready to say? So I got to make it as easy as possible for my feeble brain. And so here are four facets of faith that all end up starting with I. And we'll fill in exactly what they mean. I'm just going to give you the four words right now. So you can go ahead and fill it in. Then you can take a little nap if you need to in the middle. So first word is identity. And that's what we're going to see in verses 1 and 2. The second I word is inheritance. That's what we're going to see in verses 3 through 12. And faith has a relationship to an inheritance as it does to an identity. In verses 13 and 14, single those verses, those are really crucial verses, faith and importance. We're going to look at importance, so identity, inheritance, importance, and then finally, illustration. In verses 15 to 18, we'll all be glad for that illustration of what we're talking about because that helps it come to life, right? Well, that's what Paul does in verses 15 to 18. He gives us an illustration of a man in his faith or a man in his unbelief. So we'll see that. Right, so that's where we're going. Faith has an object. Here's what uh, I want us to see about how faith has a power to shape even identity. Paul's entire sense of who he was was shaped by his faith. His faith in the promise of life that was in Christ Jesus. Because what does he call himself in verse 1? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, According to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. According to that promise, I have derived my entire identity. And my identity is essentially as an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle being not just your run-of-the-mill missionary. Some people like to translate it that way. It literally in Greek means sent one. So anybody who is sent is an apostle. Missionaries have an apostolic gift you could use it that way as long as you clarify, I'm just speaking etymologically. I'm not speaking in terms of the usage of the word apostle in the New Testament. Because if we're speaking in terms of the usage of the word apostle, we're talking about 12 people plus a couple. 12 people. So in Luke chapter 6, we learn that Jesus went out and spent the entire night in prayer. And at the end of that night, the next morning, he went up on a mountain and he called to him those he wanted to be with him that he would choose as apostles. They were a select few. They were 12. And they were to be with him in order that he might send them out to preach, according to Mark 3. The apostles that Paul's talking about here, the way he's using it here, I am one of Jesus' commissioned representatives. You want to know what Jesus said? You listen to me. You want to know what the New Testament is going to be? You listen to me because one of, well, the key criterion for a book of the Bible making it into the New Testament was, was it written by an apostle? Because they are the ones who uniquely got the promises in John 14, John 15, and John 16 that the Holy Spirit would call to their minds everything that Jesus had said to them and that they would pass it on, that he would lead them into all truth that he would make them his witnesses. So these apostles are the ones, and that's why Paul fights so strongly for his apostleship in Galatians and in 2 Corinthians and in other places. He insists to the end of his life, last book, he insists, I'm an apostle 
of Christ Jesus. And I am because of this promise of life. I am banking my entire life that that promise is true. Can you think of an illustration for you? I'll put this on a question for you later in your small groups. You don't have to answer out loud now, but I hope you'll answer either privately with yourself later. Or to, can you th- what's an example of someone who has said something to you and you've bet the farm on it? For me, I thought immediately of you know, my paycheck. They said, well, we'll pay you this much if you'll come and do this work. And I just assumed that they were good for that. And they have been. That's great. You know? But, you know, it's like if, if they were liars and didn't do what they said, then that would mess us all up. And we use that expression, bank on it. We go to banks. We put our money in there, and we expect that we'll be able to still write on a piece of paper or do some electronic transaction that we'll get it out of there. And it's all by faith. It's all based on a promise, a promissory note that if they're not true to their word, I'm up the creek without a paddle. But you know what? I'm going to trust them. I'm going to bet the farm on it. I'm going to put all my money in their hands. I'm going to, and that's what Paul's saying. I'm going to put all my life on the line that this promise is true. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, testifying to both small and great that Jesus Christ is Lord, the long-promised Messiah, the Savior of our sins. That's what I'm going to do. And there were times... In fact, in this chapter, when he began to wonder, did I do the right thing? You know, everybody in Asia has deserted me now. It looks like curtains for me. I'm going to be killed. The powers that be in the Roman world, the big human civilization far beyond Palestine, far beyond Tarsus, this sort of backwater place, which wasn't a backwater. Paul would have been quick to assert. It's no small city in Tarsus that I came from. He had civic pride, but nonetheless, it's not the heartbeat of the entire Roman Empire. But the heartbeat of the Roman Empire was saying, Paul, you're an idiot. You know, we're done with you. We're going to kill you. And did I do the right thing? Any of you have second thoughts along the way about your Christian commitment? Did I do the right thing selling, selling out to follow Christ? You did. How do you know that, David? I know it by faith. I know that this word is true, that this promise is true, and that no one has given up houses or lands or sons or daughters or fathers or mothers or wives who will not receive many times as much in this present life and in the life to come, eternal life. So Jesus told his followers, it's worth it. Yes, it's going to be tough. It'll be hard. You'll have your moments of doubt, but it'll be worth it. So sell the farm, burn the ships, bank everything on this promise. It'll shape your identity. It'll determine what you are. And your identity fundamentally is not an apostle. None of us is an apostle. We have our different jobs that we do, but the jobs do not define who we are. No, the fundamental reality of who we are is one word, believer. I'm a believer. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. It's very important to spell out the content of our belief, as we'll see as we go further here. But I'm a believer. So if my identity is as a believer in Jesus Christ, it shapes my job, what I'm specifically called to do. And none of us is an apostle. Some of us may be pastor teachers. Some of us may be lawyers, doctors, engineers, plumbers, electricians, whatever we are. Um, But we are that because we believe that's God's will for us. If we didn't believe that, we'd get out of it. 
And I, don't, I think you are doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7 that you should continue in the calling you were in when you were called. So stay the course. Be a Christian in that context and shine like a bright light there. So that is part of your overall calling is your vocation uh, narrowly defined. But your relationships are also part of your calling. And so everything that we do, all the people that we relate to, again, it's affected by our relationship to this promise, as is clear from um, Paul here. Verse 2, this letter is written to Timothy, my beloved child. How is Timothy his child? I, was Paul married? I mean, we don't know that. He may have been married formerly. His wife may have died. His wife may have left him when he became a Christian. We don't know exactly what's happening there. But we have no record of his wife, and therefore we have no record of his children. It's not his biological child. Timothy is his spiritual child. On his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 14, he goes through this city of Lystra in the region of Galatia. And while he's in Lystra, he preaches the gospel there as he has in other places. And apparently Timothy became a believer because in Acts chapter 16, on the second journey, as Paul goes back through Lystra to see how's everybody doing after we preach the gospel there, he finds this young man who's very well spoken of by all the other believers in Lystra. His name's Timothy. And in fact, he's so well spoken of that Paul says, I'm going to take you with me on this second journey. And so then he realized from 1 Corinthians chapter 4 when he talks about Timothy, he talks about him as my true son in the faith, that he's meaning that I was the human instrument through whom Timothy believed. And maybe Timothy's mother and grandmother as well, as we'll see in a minute. So my relationships are defined by the gospel. You're my son, Paul says to Timothy, because of this promise. I've trusted this promise. You've trusted this promise. We're believers, and I'm your father in the Lord, and you're my son in the Lord. And so this promise has affected everything that I do. I call people brothers that aren't my physical brothers, but they've become even closer than brothers because of this amen Bible study that we go to. I sit at the same table with them for years, and they know things about me that I haven't even told my wife. They know a few things about me that my kids don't know, that other people at work don't know, but I've learned to trust these guys. They are closer than brothers to me because of this promise that we share in common, the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Well, and the promise not only brings our calling, it brings relationships, the promise also brings benefits. And Paul spells out three of them. And you can think, we can just rush through this. But we shouldn't. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Tim, he doesn't need to write Timothy some flowery, formal um, greeting in his letter. They know each other really, really well. They've known each other a really, really long time. This is going to be an intimate letter, and so we don't need to just put in niceties. And so that's not what he does. He's putting in, reminding himself and Timothy of the great blessings that come from this promise of life in Christ Jesus. It was just a couple of weeks ago, now a few weeks ago, Todd was preaching, just picking up the baton from Sandy as Sandy took off, and Todd then launches us into our new series on Sunday mornings in the book of Colossians and preached on two verses and gives the same basic information, just looking at the envelope of the letter, really, where it's, okay, it's from Paul to the church at Colossae, grace and peace. And I don't know if you remember, that. I remember being blown away thinking, that is awesome, Todd, that was a great sermon, just grace and peace. And what, think about that. Don't just let it go, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a dear John. That's just the way we start letters, grace and peace. No, no, no. There was a lot of importance in those two words. The grace is the essential message of this New Testament, and peace 
is the essential message of this Old Testament. It is one promise that flows from Genesis to Revelation, Old Testament and New Testament, all based on this one promise. And so he's saying here we have the summation of our Christian lives in grace and peace. I th that's great. That's brilliant. That's perfect. It's Old Testament, New Testament, grace, peace, Gentile, Jew. I mean, it's wrapped up perfectly. So it kind of messed with my head when I'm looking at this chapter. I go, what, why do you throw mercy in there? That's not really fair. Why, why do we need mercy? We had the perfect complement of Old Testament, shalom, peace, New Testament, charis, grace, and that sums it all up. What, where's mercy? I mean, what, what could be more than Jew, Gentile? What, what are we going to insert there? I don't know. I don't exactly know the answer to that. I know that mercy is a little different than grace. Grace is giving me what I don't deserve. You receive this gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. You don't deserve it, but you're going to get it. Wow, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. But mercy is not getting what you don't deserve. It's not getting what you do deserve. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Oh, Lord, have mercy. I, I'm helpless. I'm hopeless. And he helps us anyway. And then peace is this wholeness. So the grace that Todd spoke about and it's in Colossians, it's in every one of Paul's letters. Grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. Only here in Paul, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, two of his very last letters, does he insert mercy in there. Speculation is dangerous. Don't try this at home. No, we, there's a fine line between speculation and meditation. I'm thinking, why is mercy in there? What's going on? And I don't know. And why is mercy just in there now? Why hadn't he always used that trio of blessings from the promise of life in Christ Jesus? Well, here's one thought for you. And I'm looking for um, confirmation. So those of you that are older, maybe you'll particularly tell me what your experience is. As I've gotten older, not old, I'm not old, I'm not even close to old, but I'm older than I used to be, as all of you are, I don't care how old you are, you're older than you used to be. As I've gotten older, I've realized more and more and more my need for mercy. Lord, don't give me what I deserve. Don't have mercy. Please don't give me what I deserve. And hopefully in that process too, I'm learning to show mercy more to others, that we become more merciful the older we get. One Confirmation of that thesis would be in the disputed passage in John 8 about the woman caught in the act of adultery. And there's a question as to textually whether that is really included in the best manuscripts of the New Testament or not. So, yeah, hold that debate off to the side. But we're all familiar with the story. Remember how it happens in the story when the woman's flung there? And so, you know, Moses said we ought to stone her. She was caught right in the act. And you're thinking, so where's the other guy that was caught right in the act? If she's caught in the act. There were two people there. And, you know, well, we let him go. It was all a setup or whatever. And Jesus isn't going to have anything to do with that. Maybe. Who knows? But Jesus says, let the one of you that is without sin cast the first stone. Remember what the text says at that point? Beginning with the oldest, they began to leave. They all had their stones and they were ready to slaughter that woman with a stoning of public execution right there. And when he said that, beginning with the oldest, they dropped their rocks and they went home. Why? Because the oldest 
no better than maybe some young foolish people who think, I'm getting better and better every day. You know, I think I can pull this Christian life off in my own strength. I, I think I've about got it licked. And so... Yeah, I can do this. I'm a strong Christian. I'm a believer. I'm, I'm gung-ho. Come on, we can do this. We can take this. Second's got all these resources. Wow, we can do anything. We can change the city. We can change the whole country. We can change the world. And I do believe that's true, but maybe not in the way that the youthful enthusiasm believes that it's true. Older people a little bit longer, and as we've lived a little bit longer, we've recognized that we haven't measured up to our aspirations and our hopes and our dreams. And we realize more than ever the gospel is true. And because of the grace of God and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, I can still stand. So I want that intermediate blessing in there between grace and all that it entails from the New Testament and peace and all that it entails from the Old Testament. Give me mercy. Give me mercy for the helpless for the one who's really, really strong. John Stott says about that trio, it's a helpful way to remember it, that grace um, is for the worthless. Mercy is for the helpless. And peace is for the restless. And we get that great trio of blessings, all because of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Faith has to have an object. That promise is the object. So that's what your faith is resting in. And we could quit there if it were just a homily, but hey, that's a good deal about uh, Amen Bible study. It's not a homily, it's a marathon. I get to preach for two hours, they told me. I can't believe this. It's so, okay, I know it's not two hours. All right, so let's move on. Uh, let's look next at verses 3 through 12. Faith comes from and moves to inheritance. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Faith has an object, the promise mentioned in verse 1. But we also have to remember faith has a subject, and the subject of faith is you, or it is I. Somebody has got to be believing. Something has to be believed. That's the object. But who's doing the believing? And that is you and I are doing the believing. 
When Paul mentions your sincere faith, again, we're talking about the man and his faith, and we're looking for, so where's faith in this passage? Well, it's in promise in verses 1 and 2. It's in the mention of your sincere faith in verse 5. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Um, Timothy, it's your faith that I'm thinking about right now. You've got to have faith. You've got to believe God. You've got to learn on your own. I'm not here much longer. I'll be gone soon. The day of my departure has drawn nigh, as he'll say in chapter 4. I'm almost out of here. Timothy, you've got to keep the faith. You have to have that sincere faith that I know was in you. You've got to stir it up and stoke it and keep it going. So in order to better understand, how does that work? What do you mean faith he did? Once you have it, you have it forever. It doesn't, not exactly. Look at what this passage teaches us about faith, and you'll see that faith has a past, faith has a present, and faith has a future. The past of faith is what's in view in verses 3 through 5. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. There's a past to your faith, Timothy. You didn't come full grown out of the head of Zeus as Athena did. No, you, you were nurtured along the way. You were taught Old Testament stories by your Jewish grandmother and your Jewish mother. And they both taught you the Old Testament. They may have taught you that the just shall live by faith. They may have taught you that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. They may have taught you that the seed of the woman would come who would crush the serpent's head. We're all looking for that seed who is the seed of Abraham, who is the seed of David. And that one will come, the servant of the Lord, who will suffer in our place. They may have taught him all of that. And so when he heard the gospel from Paul being taught from the Old Testament... And then he heard about the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It all clicked, and he, he believed. But his faith had a past. Your mother taught it to you. Your grandmother taught it to you. It had a past for Paul, too. He mentions in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve. I do serve God, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. I'm not the first one to believe. There's a past that came before me. I received my faith as a deposit that was handed off to me. So there is an inheritance of faith. No, you can't inherit salvation just because you're a Christian doesn't mean your children are going to be Christians. As D.L. Moody says, just because you were born in a garage, that doesn't make you a car. Um, so just because you're, you're a Christian doesn't mean your children will be Christians. Just because your parents were Christians doesn't mean you've got to believe. Faith has a subject. You've got to be the subject. However, don't totally discount the role that they played along the way. People who handed you the gospel who gave you a little bit of truth and it didn't quite sink in, but you're glad for the seed that was planted. Somebody else came along and watered the seed. Somebody else came along and pulled out a big weed that was about to chew out that seed, choke it out, and now you believe. Could you stop for just a minute and give thanks for those people, the people that handed that along to you? Thank God for the faith of your fathers, not necessarily your physical fathers, but your spiritual fathers the fathers of the Old Testament, the church fathers. Lord, thank you for them. I'm hoping a name's coming into your head right now. Like, I, I need to thank so-and-so. I, I can't thank so-and-so. She's dead now. He's dead now. Well, think of a way. How do I honor those who were part of God's providence in bringing the gospel into my life? Because faith has a past. It comes from an inheritance that we receive from our fathers and mothers in the Lord. Thanks be to God for that. But faith also has a present, and that's what's in view in verse 6. 
For this reason, I know you have a sincere faith. And that word is really critical too, by the way. Sincere faith. Again, you can talk faith. You can say you have faith. But is it sincere faith? Do you really believe? Are you just putting on airs, acting like you believe? Or is your faith sincere? That's not a bad question to ask. If this large a crowd of men, when some of you don't even go to Second Presbyterian, so we have every reason to doubt your faith. I mean, good grief. You know, how... Is there any other church out there preaching? Actually, truth be told, some of my concern is more with those who do go to Second Presbyterian Church. Not because I know you personally, but I just know in a church like Second, it's so big, it's so ancient, and it's got a history. I mean, I've been in this church since my great-grandfather helped lay the cornerstone down at Panatoc. I'm, yeah, but do you know Jesus? Not Jesus, I know my great-grandfather. He's right up there with Jesus. No, probably not. no. You know, you've got to have faith yourself. You can't just trust in your legacy here. What? Young whippersnapper, you don't know what you're talking about, you know. So nominal Christianity is a huge problem in Memphis, Tennessee. So do you have a sincere faith? The kind that was in your mother, Lois, and the kind that was in your grandmother, Lois, your mother Eunice. Do you have a sincere faith? Because faith has a present tense. And this is what I want us all to focus on. This may be from, I think it's my application comes from this verse. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. What, what's that gift? Well, commentators differ on exactly what the gift is. It seems to be talking about his ordination when he is set apart for the gospel ministry. The laying on of hands that Paul participated in, according to this verse. But in 1 Timothy 4, it was the presbytery or the body of elders, perhaps in Lystra, that laid hands on Timothy and set him apart for full-time Christian service. He is now going to be one of those offices that Ephesians 4 talks about, apostles and prophets and um, evangelists and pastor teachers, you're going to be set apart for that gospel ministry. You are going to be entrusted with the gospel. That is your gift, this gospel deposit. Okay, so that happened in the past, Timothy. I want you to fan it into flame now. One of the things I miss from moving from North Carolina over here is our house in North Carolina had a, a real fireplace and it had real wood in it and real fire and you could smell it and you could you know, poke it and do all that. And I kind of like that. I thought, that's, that's kind of cool. I, I'm really missing that. Our house now has a gas log fireplace. And so you don't get that experience of waking up on a crispy, frosty morning and, you know, putting on your flannel shirt and your blue jeans that fit. You know, I once had a pair that did. And, uh, and some boots. And you go out into the woods and you chop down uh, the tree, and you bring it back to the house, and you split that wood up with your axe. You're feeling, this is manly talk, right? We're being manly here. You know, we were all lumberjacks in our dreams. And we go out and we cut that stuff up, and we split that stuff. That hickory is just getting whacked, and it's breaking out nicely. And it's been seasoned out there in the field for a year. Now we're going back out there, chomping in our boots, picking up a load of that seasoned firewood, bringing it back, and sticking it in there, and putting some great kindling around it, and then starting that kindling and that kindling, okay, it was a log starter from uh, the store probably. But anyway, I, or L.L. Bean fat back, you know, that was kind of getting that uh, fat pine to get it going. But you get it going and it's starting to go and then you add a log and add another log. You remember what your father told you, one log can't burn. 
Two logs won't burn. Three logs might burn. Four logs will burn. I've never made a fire without four logs. I don't know how to. It's got to, got to have four logs in there. It won't burn. So anyway, you do all of that, and then you start getting that smell. You hear that crackle and that pop, and you just think, this is awesome. I love this. Let's sit down and watch the movie or watch the game, watch whatever. But after a little while, you're sitting there, and you've kind of been warming by the fire, and, and now it, it's beginning to fade, and it's getting bad, and what do you do? You go over to the fire, and you poke it. You turn that log over. You bring in some other log. You put another log on the fire. You, you blow gently on it to get it going because it's almost gone out maybe. You're blowing gently to get those embers to get flaming hot again. And then you go, well, i got a little flame in there. And so now you go get the record album cover or the yellow pages or something and you're, you're blowing it like this. Or maybe you've got one of those bellows. You're really big time into fires. But you're blowing that thing up and you're getting it really, it's getting hot now. It's getting fanned into flame. Well, that's what Paul's talking about here. So, how's your faith right now? Not, man, I, I, you wouldn't believe my faith in college. I was awesome. I mean, I sacrificed everything. My GPA wasn't so good because I was so committed to the gospel. I was really involved in Young Life, Navigators, Campus Crusade, my church, Baptist Student Union, whatever. I was really doing all that. Well, that's great. I'm so glad. How, how's your faith today? Well, you know, I've got work and got the kids and got the wife and got the mortgage and got all these issues with the plumbing and with the car. and with I, I haven't had as much time to deal with it and hadn't really given it as much thought. What good is that? I thought we were supposed to get stronger in faith as time goes by, not weaker. If your flame is just dwindling down and flickering, get up off the couch and kick those logs if you don't have a poker. If you've got a poker, poke them. Turn them over. Add another log to your table if nobody else is sitting there this morning. We need, I need another log here because I'm starting to dwindle just by myself. I need some other men speaking truth into my life out of love saying, hey, come on, you can do better. Don't give up now. Come on, you can do this. You've just got your finances under control. Don't bomb it now by a foolish choice. You've just gotten your relationship with your wife better again. Don't go back. You've got to keep getting better. Like, yeah, that's good. Who's doing that in your life right now? Encouraging you, urging you on to make your faith a present reality and not a past museum piece. Faith's got a present, or it should have. And we need to fan into flame the gift of God that is there. Faith, you had nothing to do with that coming in. Ephesians 2 says that we are saved, it's by grace that we have been saved through faith, and even the faith is not yours. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So you didn't have anything much to do with the faith being placed in you, but you have a lot to do with the faith being roaring flame within you now. And then the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, it is our responsibility, apparently, to fan into flame the gift of God that is within us. So, huge application point there for the brothers sitting around these tables, small groups afterwards, meditation privately afterwards. Lord, what would you have me do to fan the flame? Think of the analogy. Do I need to add another log? Do I need kindling? Do I need a gentle breath? Do I need vigorous uh, fanning? Do I need to poke that log, stir it up? What? Lord, what is it that in my life needs to happen for my faith to be blazing today? Faith also has a future. Good grief. I, I did say two hours, didn't I? Don't I have two hours? All right, well, 
<laughs> not to worry. I understand that Sandy is his uncanny ability at Amen Bible study. When it's 7:30, he's out that door. He's leaving. So, so if it, I, Sandy, help me here. <laughs> Lord Jesus, help me. We're going to be walking out that door at 7:30, one way or the other. Um, faith has a future, and that future is laid out here in verses 8 through 12. The what uh, of faith is clearly stated as he reminds us of it in verses 8 and 9. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. Well, he saved us and called us to a holy calling. That is the gospel. That is the faith. God saves sinners. Very succinct, that's the good news. God saves sinners. He saved us, and he called us. Quickly to say, calling is used in two different ways in Scripture. There is general calling, and there is special calling or specific calling. Paul was speaking of, or I was speaking of, well, Paul was too, in verse 1 of a special calling. He was uniquely called to be an apostle. None of the rest of us shared that calling. Here, it is general calling that is in view. All of us share this calling. We were all called to live a holy life. That's the nature of the gospel. The general calling of the gospel is that God called us to a holy calling, called us to be holy, every one of us. So that's extra credit, free of charge, two different kinds of calling here. So that's the what. God saved us. That is the, the basis of our faith. Why? did God save us? Not because of any good works that we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. His own purpose and grace. Not because of us. It's by grace we have been saved. So that's why he called us. And then how did he call us? Well, he called us in Christ Jesus, verse 9, and then that's elaborated on in verse 10. That calling has now been... Well, he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Our election occurred before time began. Ephesians 1.4 makes that same point. Revelation 13.17. Revelation 17 talks about the book of life that was written before the creation of the world. In the mystery, and it is a mystery of God, he chose you. You didn't choose him. And he chose you before you had ever lived to do anything good or bad. It wasn't foreseeing how you were going to live your life. It's not based on faith foreseen or works foreseen. It's based on his gracious purpose and plan. Why would he save me? I have no idea. Why would he save you? I have no idea. But he did. Thanks be to God for that great, great gift. And then the how, it's through election in eternity past. It's through redemption in time now. And so we see these stages of incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection spelled out um, in verse 10. He gave us this grace in Christ Jesus, which now has been manifested. Now, in the incarnation, through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. That's the incarnation. Who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He abolished death in his crucifixion, and he brought life and immortality to light through his resurrection. So there's the summation of this gospel message right here in the idea that faith has a future. Why am I saying faith has a future? Because there is a mission that's given, entrusted to us, as well as Paul, in verse 11. Because of this gospel, this life, 
I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I've believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Until that day, the day of the Lord, spoken of frequently by especially the minor prophets, but it's that day that Second Peter talks about, Jude talks about, every, it's that day that is yet to come. One day there will be a time when Jesus will come again. And when he comes again, we will all stand before his judgment seat to give an account for what we have done in the body, whether it was worthless or whether it was good. And will our lives prove to be consisting of gold and silver and precious stones, as it's put in 1 Corinthians 3, or will our lives seem to be put together by wood, hay, and stubble, which will all burn up by fire when it's tested on that last day? Well, we're all just banking on that day. We're leading forward to that day, but now we know that we need to live our lives in such a way as to make it count for eternity. So we're living our lives. Faith has a future. And the object of your faith will return. Jesus is coming back, and so live for that day. That's how you show you it's faith. It's not fight. He's not back yet. But even though it's not sight, I'm living for that day. And so this faith has a future in this mission that is to come. Okay, many uh, commentators just will go all the way from verse um, 3 to verse 14. All one paragraph. ESV, in fact, does that. But other commentaries will break out verses 13 and 14. Other translations break that out. I'm among those that would break out those two verses as being so critical. And those two verses have something to teach us also about a facet of faith. If we've seen that faith has a power to produce an identity, and faith comes from and issues toward an inheritance, here we see that faith is of first importance. Faith is of first importance. I get that expression from 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul is recounting to the Corinthian church. I just I have something I want to remind you about. I want to recall to you those things which are of first importance that were handed down to me and that I'm now handing down to you that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And on the third day, he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. That's of first importance. That's his message. That's his gospel. So what then is Paul's summation of the gospel here in 2 Timothy? We, we learned faith has an object, the promise in verse 1. Faith has a subject. Timothy, you must believe. You must stir up this faith that has been given to you. You must stir it up and keep it blazing. But faith also now um, we see is a whole body of belief, of doctrine. In this passage, in verse 13, we see a reference to the faith. Look at verse 13. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. Um, those, the pattern of sound words, there are a bunch of different synonyms here. And I've listed them for you on your handout. Verse 6, the gift of God. Uh, we already looked at verse 1, of, or verse 2, the promise. So there's the promise, the gift of God. Verse 8, the testimony about our Lord. Verse 10, the gospel. Verse 4, I mean, number 4, I'm sorry. What has been entrusted to me, that's in verse 12. Number 5, the pattern of the sound words in verse 13. Number six, the good deposit in verse 14. All of those are synonyms for this faith. And it is the faith, the faith in verse 12. Which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed for I know my belief. I'm sorry, not verse 12. 
uh, verse 13, that's where we are. Deep breath. I'm racing too fast. All right. Verse 13. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The faith is an expression used by Paul and others in the New Testament to refer to the body of Christian doctrine. And he means by that the body of Christian doctrine which is of first importance, that which is the whole counsel of God, that which Jude refers to as I am urging you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Timothy, I'm giving you this gospel. Defend it with your life. Be true to it till death, as the faith of your fathers has been true. Your fathers were true to death, now you be true to death. Guard that deposit. Hold on to it. And so there are those, um, there are partners to this faith. And they're surprising. And you're going to have to do some study on your own to get all of this wealth out of here, but you can do that. The two partners are suffering in verses 8 and 12. If you have faith, guess what's coming with it? Suffering. It is appointed to all those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus that they will be persecuted. Through many hardships, we must enter the kingdom of God. It just comes with the territory. If you heard that it was going to be all health and wealth, if you trusted Jesus, you were taught a false gospel. You were taught wrong. Suffering comes with it, and yet we're not ashamed. Suffering, it's blessed are those who suffer for righteousness' sake. Blessed. And then the other thing that comes with it is love. If you've got faith, you'll always have love. Faith expressing itself in love is how Paul put it in Galatians. That love is the partner of faith every time. You can't have faith, true faith, if you don't have love. And we'll see that, maybe you already did see that in 1 John. That one of the tests of genuine faith is whether it issues in love. And that's what Paul's saying here too. So there are two imperatives in this section. Follow, verse 13. You're supposed to follow. And then um, in verse 14, guard. You've got to do both those things. And Timothy, it's on you to do those commands. But the indicatives are very, very valuable. I'm not saying you've got to do them in your own strength. Retrace the work of the Father in verses 8 through 12. God the Father saves us. You didn't do that yourself. You don't have to worry about that. And then uh, the work of the Son in verse 13 is explicitly mentioned. Um, the pattern of sound words you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, you'll have that faith and love. And then the Holy Spirit specifically mentioned in verse 14. Faith has an illustration. And with that, we end. And we just say it really quickly. Uh, the illustration is negative and the illustration is positive. The negative illustration is um, that these two guys, Hermogenes and Phygelus, deserted me. Everybody in Asia has deserted me. Everybody's out. It's, it's sad. It's, no one's standing by Paul at this point. They are faithless. But there's one guy, Onesiphorus, in verses 16 to 18, who was faithful. And he, at the risk of his own life, sought Paul and found him and came to his aid in Rome. That was pretty awesome that he was able to do that. Faith is indispensable. You can review these four points at your leisure. You can study all this stuff. I want to close where I started. Faith is indispensable. And whatever persecution may come to you, hold on to it. Guard it. Protect it with your life because it is your life. 
that hymn that we sang uh, as we started, Faith of Our Fathers, I remember singing in high school, and we sang it in a chapel in the school that I went to. It wasn't really a Christian school. It was a nominally Christian school, Judeo-Christian background. We're singing that. And most of my classmates were singing this. And it became obvious, and it was a problem. Instead of faith of our fathers, holy faith, we will be true to thee to death. There was one kid in our class who had real complexion problem. And so what they would say, face of our fathers, living stone. Face of our fathers, holy face, we will be true. And they're all looking at him and giggling when they're singing that, like they're getting away with something. Would he just quit, give up, go home? Faith has a face. It's the face of Onesiphorus. It's the face that you think of, not of the people that brought you the gospel, but the people who are sitting around that table or the people that you know, contemporary, that helped me keep up with the gospel. Would you thank those faces today? Who comes to your mind with that face of an illustration of faith right now in your life? And you strengthen him or her and let him or her strengthen you. Let's pray. Father, there's so much that we can get out of your word. It's amazing. But Lord, we don't get it out of your word until we put it into practice in our lives. Help us not be foolish and be hearers of the word and not doers. But Lord, we can't do everything. So show us the one thing that you would have us do to be true to this faith. In Jesus' name, amen.